Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you have a computer in front of you, do me a favor. Go to Wikipedia and search for the term metal god, like the god of heavy metal. As soon as you hit enter, you will not be transported to the page of Ozzy Osbourne, not the page of Lemmy or Eddie Van Halen. There is only one true metal god, at least according to the crowd-edited website Wikipedia. That metal god is Rob Halford, lead singer of Judas Priest, and my guest this week. I don't know if we need much more of an introduction than that, actually. We're listening back to my 2009 conversation with Rob, because back then, Rob had just released his first ever heavy metal holiday record. He called it Halford Three Winter Songs. Since then, he has released another holiday album, last year's Celestial. And he has a new book, Confess the Autobiography. It tells the story of Halford's life from the man himself. came out just a few months ago. Before we go into the interview, let's kick things off with a certified Rob Halford Metal God holiday classic, his take on We Three Kings. You were born in 1951, which means that um, when you were finishing high school and, and, you know, you were in your late teens, it was just as uh, heavy rock music was emerging from uh, uh, early rock and psychedelic rock. Um, What was the music that you heard that made you think, I like rock and I want it to be loud and hard? Well... It, actually, Jesse, it was even before that because I can remember my my aunt Pat giving me an old record player that she wanted to get rid of, and, and it was still in pretty good working order. So I think I was probably what ten or eleven when she gave me this uh, record player, and I lifted the lid, and there was a bunch of forty fives in the singles in the uh, in the deck, and it was Little Richard, Bill Haley and the Comets, and Elvis Presley. And I played them all back to back. And even at that age, at that moment, it was, my God, this is it. This is it. This is me. This is electric. This is contacting me in, in such, a, such a strong personal way. You know, something's going on here. Why, why is it making me feel this way? I just felt alive and felt genuinely excited. And, and so even from that point before, as I grew, you know, slightly beyond my teenage years, um, it was already in my system. So, yeah, you know, obviously Hendrix, uh, The Yardbirds, uh, Cream, King Crimson, early Led Zeppelin, early Deep Purple, The Who, all of these people um, were the ones that I was listening to. The first couple of albums that uh, Judas Priest made um, it didn't have any huge hits on them, and um, it, it, must have been a, it must have been a bit of a struggle to continue uh, to be working as a musician. Um, did you feel confident that, that this was going to become something? Yes. I think self-belief is 
absolutely vital. Uh, it, no matter what you do in life, self-belief doesn't matter what you're going to do. You, you've got to have that. You've got to have that inner drive, you know, and particularly in the entertainment business. And I, and I say that rather than the heavy metal business or the rock and roll business, because it is that's what we do, you know. Um, there are so many pitfalls, and there are so many days where is it worth it? I'm going to give up. This is crazy. I'm not getting anywhere. That really puts you through, again, that kind of apprenticeship period of, look, if this means so much to you, you will do anything that you need to do. You will go through whatever you need to go through. And particularly in my role as Judas Priest, we did all of that. We did the sleeping in the back of the van. We did the barely having enough food for one meal a day type of deal. You know, KK scrubbing his teeth in the snow in Scandinavia is not a story made up. It's a real thing, you know. And um, and the first record that we made, Rock a Roller, it was called, our first label. We went to them and asked them for, I think it was like $20 a week each to survive because if we didn't have that, we'd have to have second, second uh, sources of income. And they turned us down flat, so... Right through the the early part of the band's career in Priest, especially, we were doing multiple multiple jobs, you know, to just to pay the bills and and put some food in your stomach. But the, most of it went into into equipment, obviously, new strings, new drum skins, uh, a new mic, whatever it was. Um, you have to you have to really figure that out. You really have to figure this out right at the early stage. The thing is, what happens there is. Your, your your early music is probably sometimes the, your best music because you've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to lose. You're not famous. You know, you haven't got a gold record. You haven't got a platinum record. You, you're not playing in front of thousands of people. So your creativity is coming from a very pure source. So now, you know, in my 38th, 39th year of being a professional musician, I look back at those early days with a lot of fond uh, memories. You came out in the um, in the early '90s. When and, and to what extent were you out as uh, gay to your friends and in your family and the and the people that you were working with in Judas Priest? Well, it, with family, it was never discussed. It still isn't discussed now. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I'm, I'm, me and my partner have been together for 15 years. Um, you know, it's like the elephant the elephant in the living room type of deal. I love my family dearly and they respect me as much as I respect them. And that at the end of the day is the issue, isn't it? It's respect. Respect each other for who we are. We're all different, different sexual orientation, different religion, different colours of the skin, different jobs, different social strata. It doesn't really matter. If the respect is there, you know, we can get through a lot of things in life. But with me, you know, being a metalhead, being in a, in a, in a, in an essentially, and to some extent, still essentially homophobic realm in music, um, it was difficult. But again, you you learn to deal with it. What what I was doing for the longest time was putting a lot of things before myself. And when I went through my drug and rehab thing in 1986, I've been clean and sober since 1986. I was taught you've got to put your own house in order first. You've got to really. It's not being selfish. You've got to get yourself kind of figured out and then everything else will not necessarily fall into place around you, but at least you can take care of other things. But look after your own needs first. And and I, I thought, that's is that the right way to live? But it is. It's the only way you can remain sane and sensible and in the, and in the end 
connect and be helpful and useful to other people as and when you need to. So I, I struggled with all that through through many, many years until the moment came when very, um, you know, unpre-planned, uh, I mentioned that speaking as a gay man, yada, 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 I was on MTV. <laughs> And the you know the producer dropped his clipboard <laughs> and he's like, did he just say that? You know, and then it was like a firestorm around the world. What what we all found very very quickly was that in the metal community, it's it's nothing more than the greatest place to be in terms of respect and tolerance and compassion and understanding. And I'm probably so, it's probably easy for me to say that because I'd already reached a level of success. So. Um, I also found out that a lot of people were going, yeah, we need that anyway. <laughs> but I didn't know that. I mean, it's one of those, you know, you can't see the wood for the trees type of deal. Um, I need to backtrack slightly and, and address that, that statement about homophobic metalheads. That's not entirely true. That's not painting the whole picture. I think there's a small portion, as in all walks of life, where you have that level of intolerance and bigotry, and sometimes it's curable, sometimes it's not. For me... It was acceptance, and it was just a wonderful feeling. Um, everybody in the band in Priest knew, you know, I knew that my family and, and all my close friends knew I get, because it was, you know, well, has he got a girlfriend? He did, he did have a girlfriend, well, well, da, 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 da. you know, and the second-guessing and innuendo. What you do when you set yourself free uh, is, is just that. You set yourself free when you step out of the closet. It's not for everybody. Not everybody can do it. Some people never do. Some people prefer to live the way they live and, you know, again, respect is the word. But if, if you can, if, you, if, you, if you're able, um, I always urge people to, to consider that moment because it's the greatest feeling in the world. All the, all the whispering behind your back, you, you take the ammunition away from people, you become a stronger person and that's what it's all about. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of young people are listening to me talk right now and I know that... In in my life as a teenager, I was going through absolute hell trying to come to issues with, with my sexuality, and it's still a, it's still a problem now, even in today's enlightened world and and the, the self help groups and all the places you, you can talk this type of issue through. It's a it's a horrible thing to try and come to terms with, but you've got to come to terms with it. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a freak. You're not weird. You're perfectly normal. You're okay. That's just the way it's turned out to be. It's not a choice of life style as, a, as, as opposed to what the extreme right will say. We can change you. We can cure you. Forget it. That's rubbish. You know, you are who you are. Be proud of who you are and step forward. You know, I, I, I was thinking as you were, as you were saying that about, you know, the spirit of uh, so much of metal and especially so much of Judas Priest is about, um, uh, is about this kind of outrageous 11 out of 10, um, uh, self-expression and, you know, vanquishing foes and yes. freedom. Yes. Um, it must have been very difficult to present yourself in that way while, while as, as a god of that, mm. while you were struggling with those issues yourself. Maybe that's where I put some of that, you know, this is like uh, Jesse Dr. Phil here because maybe <laughs> that's where it was because, you know, I'm, I'm the primary lyric writer for Priest, obviously, and, and all my solo activities. All of my lyrics are full of optimism. All of my lyrics are full of that confrontational situation. I believe the good will always outwin, will always win over evil. I believe that. 
I think that's the way of the world. And um, I, I use that. I use a lot of, you know, metaphors and, and kind of smoke screens and a little bit of ambiguity in my lyrics. But, um, you know, when I'm talking about the painkiller, you can, you can put that up against anything, dictatorship, um, you know, bigotry, war, you know, a- anything anything where you, you can overcome um, difficulty. So maybe that's what I was doing in all those years. I mean, I kind of sidetracked in the turbo record, you know, and, and went a little bit more lightweight, so to speak. But I, I still think those messages are valuable in terms of fantasy and escapism and rock and roll. But the, the, the bulk of my lyrics have always had kind of a, a, a serious uh, content to them. And fortunately, being in a metal band, I was able to, to utilise those messages in the lyrics in, uh, in the right way. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rob Halford. He's best known as the frontman of the legendary metal band Judas Priest. Here's one of their signature hits, Hellbent for Leather. Hellbent, hellbent for leather. Like a snake, faster than a shadow. Turns the flare from a raging sun. An exhibition, ship position. Yet no one knows from where he comes. Starting in the late seventies with uh, one of your signature hit, hits, uh, "Hell Bent for Leather," you, you started in wearing it essentially. I don't know, I, like basically something between biker clothes and S and M clothes, mm. um, and doing things like you know riding in on a motorcycle and all these mm. all these crazy things. Mm. Um, when did you first start thinking like? You know what would be great for this band? Like if we just went to the uh, bondage store and just bought some crazy stuff. <laughs> well, that's the only way. In those days, that, that was the only way you could get that kind of gear. <laughs> Mr. S in London. I think he's still there, actually. Um, but if you look on the YouTube and and put in Judas Priest Japan 1970-something, you'll see a very different-looking band. Um, we didn't really establish the, that particular, the correct look <laughs> uh, until uh, probably um, Sadwings, no, Sin After Sin, Stain Class. There's the, the, the song you mentioned, Jesse, Hellbent for Leather, which is a great song, and actually it was Glenn that wrote the lyrics to those, um, that particular tune. Um, a glint of steel and a flash of light, you know. Uh, again, it's a very assertive, macho type of song. And I remember us talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool? This is a, a, a biker song. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring a bike on stage? And I remember whatever, what, wherever we were at, we asked someone, is there anybody here who rides a bike? And somebody did. And we said, hey, we'll give you five quid, you know, ten bucks, if we can, you know, use the bike on stage. And that's how it all started. And now, of course, that's become kind of part of tradition and the heritage of the band. And and so suddenly, heavy metal music, the sound, the power, uh, the dynamic, the aggression, uh, all of the great um, aesthetics of, of metal had a look. So now when you see somebody walking down the street, they're not going to be decked out like we are on stage. But if you, you see somebody and you go, there's a metalhead, you know the attributes with the studied belts and the chains or whatever, the, the wristbands, that's your, um, those are your colours, so to speak. Were you aware in the, in the early 80s of the kind of uh, 
uh, the kind of odd irony of the fact that this was the <laughs> that this was the metal costume, yeah. but it was also a, you a see, gay subculture yeah. costume. You see, that's just me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, I I, I kind of think that's cool. There's something about me. I don't know whether it's the inner child or the inner stupidity, but you know, or the naivety. But that never even crossed my mind, and I was walking out on stage with this. Or, you know, village people type of vibe going. And I thought he was extremely funny, extremely funny. It's bittersweet when you think of the torment I was going through mentally. But, um, yeah, uh, and, and I'm kind of I'm kind of glad, really. Uh, I mean, uh, in in essence, I mean, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a. I'm not into that kind of scene of, of of my particular world. Again, respect it; just doesn't appeal to me. But but it is ironic that um, that, uh, that there's a correlation there, and people were going, "Come on, Rob, we knew all the time. You didn't have to tell us." <laughs> <laughs> you you were really hiding in plain sight. <laughs> yeah, hiding in plain sight, exactly. What was the um, looking back the most kind of r- ridiculous, amazing, delightful? Uh, you know, spinal tap moment uh, that you had in your presentation. Well, again, you know, again, it's 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 something that's kind of tinged with sadness because here's the deal: it's the ultimate spinal tap moment. We um, we were on the painkiller tour. We were coming to the end of the tour. Remember, this is 1991. We'd just come off the back of that very, very difficult Reno trial. Prior to that, the band had been working pretty much nonstop for 30 years I, I uh, should, without a break. I should interject here that you're, you're referring to, you, you had been uh, uh, sued in civil court um, yes. by uh, the parents of two children who had committed suicide. And um, yes. the suggestion was that it was your, your subliminal messages in your music that had driven them to suicide. Exactly. And of course, that was complete and utter rubbish. And it was an extremely difficult uh, time to go through. We were in a court in Reno for a month and we faced these accusers uh, and um, basically told them that firstly, you should take you should take responsibility for your kids. And I think that's what parents should do. And I mean, I know it's difficult. But you should still be take responsibility for your kids until they're old enough, and, you know, to leave the nest. Um, the kids were out of control, drugs and booze. The only thing that they loved was their metal. They loved Judas Priest. That's the irony of that that particular situation. They were hardcore Priest fans, but they got messed up with um, with booze and drugs. You know. So you're coming off of this really difficult period. Coming off with that, you know, but um, we, we held back the release of Painkiller, but now it was time to release it. We released it. We had an incredibly successful tour all around the world, and I think the last show was at um, in Toronto. And we were playing in a one of these baseball fields that, you know, doubles up as, a, as an outside venue. Loads of people, 30,000 people, whatever. The stage was in the middle of the baseball field. The dressing rooms were obviously you know, where the dogouts are, that type of deal. So we, to get from that location to the stage, we had to get on golf carts. The lights go down, the, the fans start going crazy, we jump on golf carts and we're all going off in different directions <laughs> for a start-off. They're spinal taps. Somebody, some of us are going north, some of us are going south. We eventually somehow get to the stage while the intro tape is running. I dash up, get onto my Harley Davidson, which is under the drum riser, at a queue in the intro tape. These pneumatic steps come up underneath the drum riser, and I'm able to roar out on the Harley. 
Everything was going to plan until suddenly somebody somebody yelled, we can't find KK, we can't find him, we've got to stop and start again. Well, that's what we were attempting to do, but nobody told me this. So I rode out on the bike. The guy that operates the stairs was bringing him back down. So I just belted into the bottom seat, uh, bottom set of stairs rather, at, I don't know how many miles an hour, knocked myself double back, you know, gymnastics, Beijing, <laughs> landed on my back underneath all this smoke and dry ice. The bike's fell, fell, fallen to one side almost on top of me, and I'm, I'm practically, I'm literally knocked out. Everything is a blur, everything's like whoosh, zooming in and out for about a minute or so. Then I can feel Glenn kicking me, trying to find where Rob is. And that, that was and still will be the only time that Hellbent for Leather was an, was, was an instrumental because it had no vocals on. So there it is. That's that. I mean, how more spinal tap can you get than that? I sh- you know. We should say too that you were knocked unconscious, but you finished the show. Yeah, I, I did. I well, you know, the show must go on, <laughs> as Freddie Freddie Mercury used to say. Even more with Rob Halford still to come. We haven't even talked about his holiday recordings. Stick around. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com Teams. On the next episode of Louder Than a Riot, Bobby Shmurda's transition from the streets to superstardom and how viral fame led to infamy. I don't ask people from the hood if they got criminal activity going on. I know in hip-hop, the better, the better. Listen now to Louder Than a Riot from NPR Music. Listen, I'm a hotshot Hollywood movie producer. You have until I finish my glass of kombucha to pitch me your idea. Go. All right. It's called Who Shot Ya, a movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. I'm Ify Whitey the new host of the show and a certified BBN. BBN? Buff black nerd. I'm Alonzo Duraldi, an elderly gay and legit film critic who wrote a book on Christmas movies. I'm Drea Clark, a loud white lady from Minnesota. Each week, we talk about a new movie in theaters and all the important issues going on in the film It's like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets Cruising. And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a podcast? I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep, lats, chest. Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Rob Halford fronts the band Judas Priest and has a number of solo records. His latest, 2019's Celestial, gives Halford's take on holiday classics, like, for example, Joy to the World. Rob, we, we've talked a lot about things that are uh, really super metal, like uh, riding motorcycles and wearing outrageous outfits and rocking out and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, on uh, Probably towards the bottom of that list is Christmas. Yes. 
<laughs> so, well, actually, it's on the top of my list right now. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I, I think uh, the question needs to be asked. Um, what, what led you to think, I should make a metal Christmas album? Because I'm the metal god and I can do what I damn well want. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes feel that way. You know, um, I was talking to Jason Bonham the other day. We did a charity show uh, in Los Angeles uh, for the, uh, the Midnight Mission, I think it's called. It was me, Jason, Slash, uh, Steve from Toto, Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer, Tony White on bass, Ed Roth on drums, uh, on the keyboards. It was like a super group. And uh, Jason and I were talking afterwards uh, and uh, we sounded like a bunch of grumpy old men, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, bought, I said, Jason, just listen to us talk, bro. You know, this is this is Jason Bonham, the son of the late great Bonzo Bonham, the drummer from Led Zeppelin, one of the greatest bands of all time. And um, so uh, we, we just got a little a little bit sidetracked, and then we said, you know, how cool it is that that we can do what we do, and that we we can really pick and choose where we want to go in our in our career. And so that's where I feel I have the great luxury these days to be able to do that. I'm, I'm able to look at where I've been and look at the opportunities that still have a sense of adventure attached to them. And so it, that's what it is with me right now with um, Halford 3, the first solo release from the Halford Band in about seven years. It's a Christmas record, yeah. It's ten tracks, six of them um, are quite famous uh, traditional uh, holiday songs and four original uh, pieces of, of, of music. And um, I love the season. I love the holiday season. It's, it means a lot to me. Uh, I'll be there this Christmas time with my family uh, back in the UK, mum and dad and brother and sister and friends and relatives. It'll be great. There's something very charming about uh, the mix of uh, sort of older Christmas songs. I mean, not let it snow, but like, um, uh, you know, what child is this? Mm. Um, and the uh, sort of grand scale of your music mm. um, uh, was was that part of was that part of what drew you to this uh, to the material to the traditional songs that you chose particularly? Well, well, thank you for acknowledging that. And sometimes, again, wood for the trees. But yeah, I mean, there's a there's a vast there's a vast dynam- dynamic canyon between Oh Holy Night which is this gigantic opus with crushing guitars and keyboards and drums and big massive vocals to that really delicate uh, What Child Is This and um, it was like pick and choose, we were not going to do Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer or Foster <laughs> the Snowman, that would have been ridiculous we wanted, to make a, we wanted to make a pretty serious record quite frankly I mean, I, you know, I, I carry a lot of things with me. It's not baggage. It's who I am. It's what I do. It's what I represent. And I wasn't going to let the team down uh, by going, you know, completely off off the, off the planet, whatever. And so um, th- those particular ones that I covered, Oh, Holy Night, Come All You Faithful, We Three Kings, um, they're beautiful songs. They're great songs. A good song will always take interpretation and, and, and adaptation. So you're able to put your own kind of impression and your own signature whatever you want to call it onto the piece and uh it was it took a took a bit of a time to figure out where we were where we were going to go in in covering those those beautiful um 
beautiful tracks. And then the other, the other tracks, the originals, were kind of spontaneous uh, pieces that came together just because it was such an inspiring uh, recording session. But this is me, you know, it's the metal god for the holiday season, and uh, there it is. Rob Halford. If you feel like getting into the holiday spirit, both of his holiday albums are a ton of fun. They're called Winter Songs and Celestial. Let's go out on one more tune from Halford, a classic Judas Priest's cover of the Joan Baez hit, Diamonds and Rust. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where after much consideration, I decided to buy a French door fridge, even though it does not fit into my cabinet. I'm going to have to move a bunch of stuff around and there will not be a water line to the French door fridge, but a family of five deserves space to store their yogurts. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. No relation to ASAP Ferg. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song comes from the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Now is a great time, of course, to buy any kind of music to support musicians who can't tour, but... Uh, The Go Team are a particularly wonderful act that we hope you will run out and and buy some records from. If you want to hear the latest about what we are up to, you can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews there. And I think that's it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Yes, sir.